This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. What's up, everybody? Hope you guys are having a good time of day or week or month or whenever you listen to this. Maybe the nukes have already landed by this point and you guys are listening to this on a shortwave radio frequency. Either way, except for maybe the nukes. Can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam LaCrosse. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. And guys, we are only... We only got two more posts left. Two more of the OG posts left before we move into the brave new world that is... Me not being a lazy piece of shit and going back and listening to the old or looking at, excuse me, the old blog posts that I have doing no work and creating any new content and regurgitating old content. So thank God for that. We only got one more to go. The second one is today. But this one, I remember when I was writing this one and I felt very, very good about doing so because when I was writing it, I, I felt I, it's one of those posts where you just know that you have a really, I think, solid foundation to build on and you want to really explore a obscure topic, not really anything that's too topical, something that's more existential and something you kind of have to dig into, excuse me, and get meaning more out on your own. And it was during what I was calling in the summer of 2020, the July comparison series, which birthed chapter eight of value economics, the comparative value advantage, or maybe it's chapter nine, I'm even losing count at this point. But I was, it was the post right after the comparative value advantage post and I wanted to kind of go something more abstract, like I said earlier, something not really as in-depth, as granular, as detailed as whatever it might be. And I thought that I had a pretty good base to build on, and it turned out to be a pretty good addition to the series. And I've done all three of these in some form or fashion, or all four of them, excuse me, in some form or fashion on this medium before. And I thought that it would be a very, very nice way to kind of start our initial descent into the new realm of Don't Do This Media, don't do this podcast especially because it's the only, I'm not going to rewrite the post again. That'd be kind of stupid, but I can at least talk about the old post. So landing the plane here, not totally landing it. We're starting our descent. And with that descent, let's get into it. So like I said, we were discussing the, in this kind of comparison series where we're dealing with the comparisons of people, comparisons to other people, comparison to kind of where we, kind of the antithesis to the Jordan Peterson, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Doing that whole type of thing was actually just after I read 12 Rules for Life for the first time, believe it or not. Um, I wanted to get much more introspective after getting really topical the first two weeks of the series. And so we're getting to the juicy, meaty, nitty gritty, throbbing pulse of comparison with this podcast because like most things they all develop from within 
But this one I found particularly interesting because the genesis of all comparison comes from within, as we all, I think, know internally and we've, we covered in the comparison series as a whole. It's simply a skewing of our internal perceptions about the world, our place in the world. What influences it is that world around us, and that is the dichotomy we're going to be talking about today. I spent a lot of thought about this as someone who has more of their fair share of insecurities. And what caused these problems to come up and at the rapid frequency? What is the root of nearly every single one of these issues? And is there a way to starve it and choke it out? After much introspection, a good amount of pop culture references, it finally clicked to me about in May of 2022, or, or 2020, excuse me. I felt that I had discovered Narnia or completed the Affinity Gauntlet. It was awesome. It was, it's too bad I nearly killed my brother and me in the process. And as I've talked about briefly before, this is when I was moving to Boston to begin my professional career in, the, in May and early June of 2020. My family was gracious enough to lend me their time and patience, mind you, to help me with the initial part of the process. The trip from Ohio to Boston is long, about 11 hours by car. My mom and dad were driving in my dad's pickup, and my brother and sister rotated between the truck and my car. My sister rode with me in the morning, and my brother switched with her and rode with me in the afternoon. My brother and I are polar opposites in most ways, but it was one of our polar opposites that led me to this discovery of the root of all comparisons. And if you've been able to stomach my ridiculously interconnected, long, and perilously deep blog posts and podcasts, you know I'm a guy who prefers substance over fluff. I'm about the steak, not just the sizzle. If you need more proof, I ate my vegetables before my meat and then preferred more meat after my dinner instead of dessert, so roast me. My brother is the exact opposite, as is my sister. He's more expedient. He doesn't need much more depth to satisfy him. He never ate his vegetables before his meat. He always went for dessert instead of an extra helping of meat. He would get so easily distracted by the sizzle that accompanied the steak, go ahead and ask him, he might be honest with you about how he chased things around the restaurant. The one that drives me the most crazy, however, is our selection of entertainment. Entourage is some of the funniest shit I've ever seen in any television series. It's my ab in my absolutely favorite scene from the show, Billy Walsh, the neurotic director who befriends the group, is being filmed on the set of the soon-to-be-doomed soon movie Medellin, a film about Pablo Escobar. The shit is a fucking Apocalypse Now-style train wreck. Nothing's going right, it's falling apart, people are having sex with each other and blowing shit up all over the damn place. In a fit of hilarious frustration, Billy Walsh is being asked by the cameraman about the movie. And Billy Walsh responds in a typical psychotic fashion, quote, You know what? I hate the word movie. I don't make fucking movies. I make films. End quote. And as funny as that scene was, it's equally as hilarious how much I resonate with Billy Walsh there, even though E is the most relative, relatable character pertaining to me, but that's just my opinion. I don't watch movies. I watch films. I don't do fluff and popcorn flicks. They make me sick. It, I think it's an insult to the miraculous art that is filmmaking. I will never see a film with Dwayne The Rock Johnson as the lead actor, especially after Baywatch, because fuck that. Fuck that. My brother, naturally, is the exact opposite. He's the type of guy who prefers Dwayne Johnson to be the lead actor in a movie. He can actually stomach the Fast and the Furious series after they made the fifth one. I, I, this is so funny. I had literally had this conversation this morning after church. I don't know how the man sleeps at night. But considering I was going to be stuck in a car with him for about five hours, I figured we may as well try to bridge the gap. Joe Rogan had just come out with a podcast where he hosted Kevin Hart, another one of my brother's favorites. And for the record, I love the guy's early stand-up. It was hysterical. I just hate his movies and probably his recent stand-up. He can do better. But hey, the dude makes a shit ton of money like The Rock, so more power to him. Anyways, I turned on the podcast and was pleasantly surprised that my perception of Kevin Hart was all wrong. 
Kevin Hart is a really, really good dude. It doesn't mean he made some mistakes, and he certainly has made some of those. He's such a good influence on people in the broad spectrum. He's the epitome of what a man should be. Kind, hardworking, humble, masculine, stable, value-oriented, etc. And one other thing that I'll get to later, and it's a big one. To segue into that, I'll turn to what I found to be the most moving part of the podcast. Hart was guided by Rogan in talking openly about his role as a, mere, a more active father to his children. Hart openly admitted that he had failed to be more present in the lives of his family, and it finally got pressed when he got into the horrific car accident that broke him into pieces and almost took his life. Hart then vowed to reallocate the assets in his life, starting with his family, and that's what a value economics a, a, economist at its finest does. The part that shifted my paradigm on comparisons is when he started talking about a conversation he had with his daughter about her hair. His daughter was frustrated about her, how her hair looked and what her hair did compared to the other girls she went to school with, a common pain point for young women, especially young women of color. Their hair just does different things, as does most people's. Additionally, Hart's daughter went to a private school that was mostly filled with young white women, mixed women, and other women of all ethnicities, which compounded her insecurity. Hart, sensing his daughter's frustrations, did not succumb to his daughter's anger and frustration. He took a different route, the right route. He took the issue for what it was, just a simple difference in how our bodies function. Hart then told his daughter to slow down the slow thinking brain, which we will all get to later, and that if she wanted to change something about it, that it was totally fine, but it wasn't going to happen overnight. But that paled to what came next, and from the mouth of Kevin Hart, here it is, quote, I had to make sure that my daughter understood how beautiful she was. I had to make sure that my daughter understood why it's okay for her hair to be different and be unique and not the same. I had to go into full father programming of making sure you understand your value, and my daughter needed that, end quote. And that's when I nearly swerved off the road and shot me and my brother's heads off under the semi-truck of the Griswolds in Christmas vacation. That was the moment it clicked. That was the light bulb. What an absolutely excellent example of fatherhood. Instead of telling his daughter that other people were in control of the narrative and perceptions, he instead reacted inwards. He focused on what his daughter thought was a problem and told her that it was just uniqueness of her, her, her uniqueness, excuse me, of her being a young black woman having an issue that black women commonly have to deal with holistically. That's it. Nothing to be ashamed of and or mortified over. It's just who you are. Kevin Hart focused on fixing his daughter's perception of herself versus fixing her perception of other people, which may or may not have neither been relevant nor true. Too often we let our outside determine our inside. It's how security roots, its, uh, roots itself up and ends up buying all the real estate within our skulls. It's why things like porn, social media, and stereotyping are so addicting, because looking inward is hard. Which brings me to the root of all other comparisons, the belly of the beast, the other side of the dichotomy. Individual security. It makes so much sense if you think about it. So let's go back to the example of Kevin Hart's daughter again. She was not secure in her appearance or her hair. It only took a bit of guidance from her dad to reform that foundation of her own self in order to project that solidarity out into the world. That was an insecurity. The only way Hart knew we could defeat it was by restoring his daughter's security about herself. But that begs the question, where did Kevin Hart's daughter derive that insecurity from? Well, her other classmates, you see. Their hair was not the same as her hair, so she compared it, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to her own thus throwing her own internal security completely out of whack. Society enables our insecurities, which then, if left unchecked, devour us. They eat us alive from the inside. But they don't have to. 
The internal security society dichotomy and the various comparisons that ignite it can be tamed. But how? It's not easy, but it can be done. We just have to get to the root of the comparison and uproot it. In order to get to that point and defeat the genesis of all of our insecurities, we need to first see how society enables insecurity, how we let society enable insecurity, and what we can do to stop ourselves from falling for the dirty tricks of the comparison of individual security. So gather all those tingly feels, kids, and let's peruse this beautiful theme park of our own introspection, unless that theme park is owned by Michael Jackson and or his, his estate. In that case, steer clear at all costs. This whole month of me doing that comparison series, we talked about dealing with comparisons at face value. But what happens when we go deeper? When we look at the root causes of comparisons and confront them? The root cause of all other comparisons is the ultimate comparison. The lack of individual security within oneself. As we saw in the small but not insignificant incident of Kevin Hart and his daughter, it's incredibly easy for our internal security systems to be threatened. In a lot of cases, it can be overwhelmed and dismantled, allowing all types of threats inside our psyche to potentially harm us. So what are these outside forces? Well, it's anything that is not us. Society enables insecurity simply because it does not care about how little we are. Our smallness does not matter to society, nor should it. It's too big, too complex to care, and we shouldn't expect it to. So why does it affect us in these detrimental ways? That is where personal responsibility comes into the, the equation. If I were to just say simply that society is this bad, evil, and ugly thing, and that you were this good, gracious, and beautiful thing, it wouldn't be just generalization. It would be a lie. A big lie. A dangerous lie. I've made posts that have talked about this internal conflict directly, my victimhood and solitary confinement ones being good examples. But most of it does not come down to outside force. No. That's why we call it internal, not external conflict. When we blame the outside world for our issues without looking inward to fix ourselves first, bad things tend to happen. This is perhaps the biggest lesson within Jordan Peterson's landmark manifesto, 12 Rules for Life. Oh no, Jordan Peterson tries a triggered audience member. Relax, triggered audience member. I see your concerns and hear your doubts. I was guilty of both. But perhaps that is the key to solving a lot of situations. Maybe in order to see something for what it really is, you should attempt to empathize and see opposing views, not just go through the depths of hell, aka Reddit or Twitter, and throw stones from some pixelated afar. Just a thought. Anyways, back to Peterson. The thesis, the, oh God, the, um, the thesis of the book is that the optimal way to live life is by walking the line between what Peterson views as the defining binaries of our universe, order and chaos. We should prefer order to chaos because a world filled with unrestrained chaos is the equivalent of living in hell. It's constantly looking over your shoulder. Nothing is certain. Everything changes all the time. You are in control of nothing, not even your own mind. It's hard to imagine a more hellish place to reside. That's how you get places like the current state of the Middle East and a bizarre autonomous zone that pops up in downtown Seattle. Still can't fully comprehend the hypocrisy of that one either. However, you don't want to be totally embedded into order either. This is because when things become too set in what we perceive as the natural way of things, we can become rigid. We need that natural uncertainty of chaos to check us, to keep us honest about our views. It's how we get things like entrepreneurship, innovation, social change, and other things that warrant it. When we totally shut it out, we shut out any room for growth and leave only room for destruction and decay. 
Peterson references this by pointing to the 20th century as the most horrific period of carnage, death, and suffering the world has seen in quite some time. Communism and fascism ran rampant and gave rise to people like Hirohito, Hitler, Mao, Min, Mussolini, and Stalin. The desire for completely rigid order soon turned to totalitarianism, something for which the world paid a hefty price. Blood was spilled by the hundreds of gallons. People were killed left and right. Most were innocent bystanders of that total order descended into hell. Peterson uses these examples, ancient texts such as the Bible and Buddhist sutras, and the works of great philosophers and thinkers such as Freud, Jung, Nietzsche, and Solzhenitsyn to confront these theses. It's probably the most deeply dark and intense yet deeply rewarding piece of literature I've ever read. But Twelve Rules also has a subtext, an antidote to chaos. Well, shit, sign me up. And the antidote, according to Peterson, resides in several places. Nonetheless, all of these things revolve around a central construct. You. Your personal responsibility is the key to fending off the hell that resides within chaos. Only when you're completely bulletproof from yourself can you be totally secure and fend off the hell that is the world. I think the Smashing Pumpkins had an opening line to a song that sounded something like that, I think. Just maybe. The shortest chapter of the book, ironically, explains this principle. Rule 6. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. This is where the whole, quote, clean up your bloody room thing got started. Peterson's idea is that your mind is more similar to your bedroom than you might think. If your room is a fucking pigsty, you won't be able to stand it. You'll be living in chaos, in hell. Nothing is organized or set into order. But what if you just cleaned up a little section of it? Well, it would be a little less of a pigsty, certainly. But what else would happen? It would look out of place, that's what. It would look odd to see a bit of order peeking out of all that chaos. So what does one do? They should clean up another small portion of their room, probably. That's better still, but it still looks odd. So you keep picking it up. You eat the elephant one bite at a time. This is what we must do to our internal house, to our individual security. We must tidy it up. But first, I would argue that we should always know how society, external chaos, springs these things upon us. It's always better to have the answers to the test before you take the test. I think this quote from Sun Tzu, the ancient Chinese philosopher, warrior, and author of the legendary art of war, would agree. Quote, If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. End quote. So how do we know our enemy? How do we know what society tries to spring on us? Well, I would suggest a tiered approach. From how I see it, there are multiple ways that outside forces can affect our internal security, make us insecure, and cause that initial comparison to ripple out into other comparisons. The first step towards this by the outside world is when the lines of communication are closed. This may seem odd, and it is. We are more interconnected than we've been throughout the course of human history. We have cell towers everywhere. 5G internet will revolutionize how we communicate. We won't be able to comprehend how much that will change things. Two-thirds of the world population has a mobile device. But these statistics do not matter if we cannot engage with one another properly. Humans, as I've mentioned, are imperfect creatures. We have biases and perceptions about one another that affect everything we do. And when our communication, especially from young people, reside with, for the most part in the hands of ruling class big tech mongers, that can be a recipe for disaster. We close the lines of communications by ourselves. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons. 
We don't like to feel out of place or out of the loop. We hate when people know something that we feel that we don't. We don't like feeling on the bottom. Our natural instinct is to draw inward, to regress from communication. But when we regress too much, we not only start to dislike our, quote, enemy, we start to develop a hatred of them, a visceral hatred. We become territorial and tribal. We cling to our fellow members of our, quote, oppressed community. These folks are everywhere. Conservatives who feel like they're being discriminated against on college campuses. Black folks who feel like they're the police or wildly racist rogue state out to get them at all costs. Middle Americans who feel like the coasts are all elitist pricks who don't give a shit about them, although I think that one might be more valid than most. What closing the lines of communication boils down to is one big, ugly thing. Common enemy identity politics. CEIP is a topic we've discussed in depth on this podcast and blog, stemming from the work done by psychologist Jonathan Haidt and First Amendment lawyer Greg Lukianoff. CEIP, for those who are not aware, shame for not keeping up on don'treadthisblog.com and don't read this, listen to this podcast content, is a form of tribal warfare between two competing groups who focus on one another's differences in order to engage with one another for dominance. Gender, race, and other divisions are some of the most common offenders. CEIP doesn't see similarities, only differences. The opposite of this is common humanity identity politics, where people choose to uplift a nation of people holistically, rather than segmenting it and targeting one of those internal groups by pitting them against one another. But common enemy identity politics doesn't stop there. It has to gain momentum. It needs an outlet, a conduit, in order to propel the energy into action. That conduit is the second step of how society begins to make us insecure. And that conduit is instant gratification. Think about it this way. Would you rather get out of a problem sooner or later? Unless you're some type of devil worshiper and or sadist, you'd probably pick the first one. But there's a caveat. What is the quality of the quote, get out of the problem sooner option? Odds are probably not that great. That's why things like getting rich quick ploys and pyramid schemes don't work because they're not sustainable. They don't have an end game in mind. But why do people fall for them? Well, because they promise them some great reward, of course money, power, etc. They provide an escape of having to do the hard work, of having to wait longer. These escapes can take multiple forms. Addiction, entertainment, politics, the list goes on and it goes on long. When we see a quick fix that we think is going to alleviate the pain of our insecurities, we jump on it in no time flat. Unfortunately, we don't think about the alternative effects. What can happen to our, if, if, what can happen to our health, our emotions, and most importantly, what if we're wrong? But we don't think of these things. We're gasping for air. We can feel the insecurity creeping in. We see a door open up on top of the room being filled with water. We acquire a radio to tell C-3PO to stop the goddamn trash compactor from crushing us. We run to it. We feel like we have no choice. Which leads to the kicker of our insecurity being enabled by society. We've been baited by the ease of common enemy identity politics. We've been given a door to run through to what we believe will make us internally secure again with instant gratification. But now it's time for action and reaction. How the outside world stokes that action and reaction is through emotion, the most common and dangerous being anger. We've talked about the two E's before, ego and emotion. They're awful for you when they're the primary drivers of your decision. The fast-feeling brain is not that all-forgiving when it comes to stuff like this. Emotional responses are an immediate shoot from the hip, trigger-finger reaction to most of the stimuli that we respond to in the world. But when you shoot from the hip, you tend to miss the outlaw you were shooting at and instead blow the innocent bystander grandma's brains all over the dirty road. They don't show that you that in the John Wayne movies. But hey, at least you still shot something. You still took out your anger. 
As I've argued before, especially with men, taking out your aggression is not a bad thing. What is a bad thing is being reckless about it. We don't want dead grandmas and dead grandmas' brains on dirt roads. That isn't constructive at all. But that's exactly what happens at this final step. Well, not the dead grandma thing, at least hopefully not. But what does happen is that we do something emotionally reckless because of the conduit of impulsiveness and instant gratification providing the ease for us to do so. So we don't shoot elderly women. We instead lash out at our wife. We smack our kids across the face and they talk the slightest bit out of turn. The girlfriend who doesn't feel loves fucks the mailman out of spite. We throw shit through windows of local businesses when an innocent black man gets killed by a police officer. The grandma gets pissed off at the internet blogger making a bad analogy about older women like her getting their brains blown out and comes to blow the innocent internet blogger's brains out instead. With the lines of communication closed and the ease of instant gratification opened, stoked emotions are at the ready, a fuse ready to be lit at the moment's notice. Our insecurities are a pile of kindling just waiting to be lit up. And the domino effect can and is catastrophic. Once our internal security is thrown out of whack, it's only a matter of time before our comparisons start to run wild. We start seeing ghosts. Everyone is more attractive and successful. People speak better. They fuck better. They make more money. They're happier. But are they? We can never know. Frankly, we should never care. Why? Because we can't control other people unless you fall under their totalitarian umbrella with the likes of Hirohito and Stalin. So if we can't control people, why the fuck do we care? Why do we let our internal security system get th so thrown so far out of balance that we constantly fall for this domino effect? The answer I would give you is that it is an internal security system. We can only solve it by looking within and writing our own ship. What Kevin Hart did was great, but at the end of the day, it was up to his daughter to write her internal ship, to fix her security system, to clean up her room. So let's explore it. So, why do we fall for the influence of society-enabling insecurity? Why are we thrown so far from our roots of being so easily? Why is it so hard to like ourselves? I think there's a lot of reasons that people can commonly name, and that's fine. A lot of them have merit, and I bet a good portion of them are probably right, at least in some sense. But I don't believe in surface-level reasoning. I believe in root cause analysis, getting past the sizzle and dangling into the meat of our... or dig, oh God, digging into the meat of the steak... I believe the meat and root cause of the thing that is throwing off our internal security systems can be summed up into one word. Fear. Ah, fear. A loaded word. A frightening word. But I'm Ching. But I believe that when push comes to shove, fear can be a great motivator. It can force people to do things they otherwise would not do if they knew the consequences down the line. And that right re reason right there is why I believe fully that fear is the main driver of our lack of internal security. Remember the quote, instant gratification part of the last section? Well, fear is great at driving instant gratification. It automatically enables our fight-or-flight response in our body when we interact with certain stimuli and creates immediate ways to alleviate this problem. But I believe fear goes deeper than that. Most people believe fear is only when you see an animal that creeps you out, such as a bug or snake, or some dude with a hockey mask and machete is chasing you through an abandoned summer camp. It's more complex than that, because it always is. According to the dictionary, the definition of the word fear is, quote, an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger, anxious concern, reason for alarm, end quote. And this is obviously an incredibly loose definition. You can take it a lot of ways. And that's exactly what makes it so dangerous. We are all different people, and that's a very good thing. 
However, with that wide range of variation, that definition of fear can be stretched to fit completely around said variation. We all have things that we find to cause us, quote, anticipation of awareness of danger, anxious concern, or reason for alarm. It's simply that our emotions and minds function in ways that are uncommon to most other individuals. And comparisons are no different. We all compare different things to ourselves. We all have things that throw off our individual internal security systems. It's only natural that fear is the root of all evil in this scenario. It's the only thing that you could rationally accommodate all of our fucked up and wide-ranging perceptions about things. I believe that fear is when it comes to fear when it comes to our internal security systems boils down to three base roots. The first root is the root of fear that causes insecurity is our fear of our own deficiencies. As I stated before in the first volume of the comparison series, one myth that gets peddled in our society is that nothing truly more than a myth is that you need to be good at an abundance of things in order to be valuable in society. Well, I want to take that another step farther. Not only will you suck at most everything you do, but you probably won't live an above average life. Sorry to shit in your cornflakes, but it's the truth. But it's also okay. You shouldn't be concerned about this, and here's why. Remember our film friend Vilfredo Pareto, the dude that came up with the 80-20 theory of the pea plants and that's used in business? So if you don't remember, like most normal people, I'm a bit of an odd duck if you haven't really picked that up yet. Pareto was an Italian economist who noticed that 80% of the yield from his pea plants in his garden came from only 20% of the plants that were in his garden in total. And this is a remarkable concept, and he's a legend in the field because of it. But according to our friend Jordan Peterson in an interview with Joe Rogan, it doesn't just apply to business models and business metrics, excuse me, and pea plants. It applies to almost everything, such as the heights of trees in the Amazon and the number of stars in the universe. It applies to the output of no most notable classical music. It applies to the output of most modern music. It applies to the distribution of wealth in society, although all that number is increasing, increasing quite rapidly. It applies to the number of companies that become giants, how many people go on to professional men or women's sports, and the list goes on. The Pareto Principle is almost a ubiquitous natural law. It constitutes every nature and aspect of our existence. If that is true, and I believe that it is, you only have a 20% chance to not, just not be shitty at anything, and probably a much lesser chance at something you desire to be great in. The reason for the latter is that most people want to be great in a lot of the same areas, making a lot of money, having a great job, etc., which naturally crowds people out of those fields due to intense competition. This is a depressing and scary thought to most everyone when this reality begins to set in. You might lose hope. You might go into a fetal position. You might become to being nihilistic and hate the world. It's hard to face our shadow, to see all of our deficiencies and have them mercilessly torn apart by nature and the world. The world is a merciless place, and nature really doesn't give a fuck about your feelings. But I'm here to argue something else. What is the worst version of chaos? Of hell? A world where you come to terms with your deficiencies, or a world where you run from them? Remember Peterson. Hell is defined by the unknown, by uncertainty. If we do not give a face to the name, if we do not know our enemy, remember our guy Sun Tzu, then we are willing put it, willingly putting ourselves in the confines of our own personal hell. Michi Darko, the lead singer, rapper, whatever, of the Flatbush Zombies and the greatest rapper to ever live, debate me, I'll win, would tell you the same thing. The other members, Eric Arkelly and Zombie Juice, would also say the same thing. In a 2018 interview with Power 105's The Breakfast Club, composed of Angela Yee, Charlemagne the God, and DJ Envy, the Zombies in studio talked about their new album, Vacation in Hell, which is in my top four most influential albums I've ever listened to in my life. It changed my perspective of the, uh, on the world. And according to Darko, in relation to this topic, here's what he said, quote, that's why we made the album. What is hell? What is heaven? That's this whole discussion is. 
It's called vacation in hell because it's about making the best out of whatever situation you're in. It's like, why are we so afraid? I think that's what, what's limiting us as a people. End quote. Jordan Peterson and Michi Darko were talking about the same thing. Find your hell. Know it. Seek it. Do everything you can to discover the adverse qualities of your life and see how you can make the best out of them. The second root cause of fear that causes insecurity is the fear of the unknown. Remember the Carmine Falcone quote from Batman Begins, we all fear what we don't understand. There's a reason that I believe this line is the best of the entire series. Truth drips from it. We all fear what we don't understand. We don't know what will make us insecure next. We don't know what it will cause our comparisons and the emotions that fuel them to explode next. That is chaos personified. That is hell. The outside world is out of our immediate control, and it terrifies us. What specifically triggers this fear, in my opinion, is others' reactions to things that we do and say. We won't necessarily get mad if some random guy came up to us and told us to go fuck ourselves. We might be a bit upset for a bit, but it would fade. However, what if someone close to you said this? The cut would certainly be felt deeper. The cut would go to the bone if we were trying to be vulnerable. What if we were talking about an intense topic, like a certain political issue or a relationship problem? What if their reaction spun out of control and they went out of their way to hurt you, demonize you, make you feel lesser? That's the rock bottom of Shane personified. So what do we do when we fear the unknown? We, most of the time, simply refuse to go there. We don't even make an attempt. We create excuses and ways out of being vulnerable because we're so paralyzed by our comparisons being blown up and our internal security systems being thrown out of balance. And who can blame them? This is why ideologies are so dangerous. They create systems that are entirely run on fear and castigate anyone who differs. That's why Peterson refers to the 20th century as the greatest horror of modern times. It was a bunch of dudes who ruled over hundreds of millions of people by trickle-down fear and intimidation. Anything that strayed from it was brutally punished. There's nothing more dangerous than fear-induced violent intolerance. The third and final root of fear that causes insecurity is the fear of introspection. It's easy to point the blame outward onto the world. It's easy to be a victim, a bug that is being squashed under the foot of someone outside oppressor that is really just kind of haranguing on your life. But that would be lies, and most of us know that it would be. We live in the best and most tolerant time in the history of the human race and reside in the best and tolerant country that the human race has ever built. The mainstream media and the mob do everything they can to convince you otherwise, but they would be lying. The data's in. Every metric blows out the competition in any time and any era. Some might say, Sam, you're contradicting yourself. You said society enables insecurity, and yes, listener, I did say that. But I said the word enable, not the word cause. And there's a huge difference. And let's examine it. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word enable is, quote, to provide with the means or opportunity, end quote. The definition for the word cause is, quote, something that brings about the effect or result, an agent that brings something about, end quote. The point I'm simply stating is that society provides, quote, the means or opportunity for insecurity to come into being. The cause of a problem, the thing that, quote, brings about the effect or result in an agent, is you. You are the cause of the problem, not society. Society may provide the opportunity for you to express them, but you are the genesis. You are the root. But you are the one that must look. You must confront chaos. You must confront hell. You must enable rule one of twelve. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Brace for impact. Prepare for what's to come. It is hard to do, but it must be done in order to stand tall in the face of chaos. Standing straight with your shoulders back is what we will be covering in the next section.
bracing for impact against the true nature of chaos. Or, like the Flatbush Zombies say, creating a vacation in hell. So how can we go about creating this vacation? What do we need to do to make the best out of whatever situation we're in, especially when it comes to comparisons, our internal sense of security, and all the vices that come with them? It's hard to say. There are a lot of ways people have tried and a lot of ways that people have either succeeded or failed. They have tried to either avoid or confront chaos. In my estimation, and from all the wisdom we've encountered throughout this post by our various contributors, we need to confront chaos, not avoid it. Avoiding it will only make the problem fester and get worse, and we don't want that. We need to chip away at our insecurities bit by bit. They're too large to try to shake down in one fell swoop. What we need to do is stop being a little afraid, or being a little less afraid, excuse me, every day. We need to clean up a little section of your room every day. Something needs to start the momentum. Something needs to build the foundation. And the first recommendation I would make is twofold. Name and act on a single flaw every day. Say something to yourself about a flaw you have every single day, and then act a corresponding action to help correct it. And a reminder, you don't have to fix the whole flaw in a day because that would be impossible to ask. But you can take a step towards it. You can move the needle a bit forward so that you can want it to read, towards what you want it to read, excuse me. You can't just name something. That's an affirmation, and affirmations are stupid. They accomplish nothing if you don't act upon it. They might make you feel better, but as we've discovered with our work on the two sides of our brain, our cognitive biases and distortions can go a long way to trick us. It doesn't take very much effort. The human brain is the most complex organism to ever exist on the planet. Don't try to trick it because you'll lose. But we can't just go out and take action either. That's the whole dead grandma brains the sidewalk scenario. And I wouldn't think that many of you would consider that productive. These two things must be in lockstep to maximize effectiveness. They must create their own efficiency. And I'll give a personal example to show this. I've talked before how my biggest insecurity revolves around dating and women in general. So when I started getting serious about helping myself, about cleaning up my room, I tried to implement something that would inch me closer to overriding my fears, which shouldn't have been fears in the first place, and I can say more than two years later, or about a year and a half later, that it's worked. Our age group is really weird with how we interact with one another when we pass each other in the hallways and in the street. We don't look at each other in the eye. No one offers a smile. We put headphones in to not hear people. We walk incredibly fast, and I hate slow walkers, so you know this is fast coming from me. So what I decided to do when, in particular when I was in a particular rut was to make a commitment to look every girl that I passed in the hallway or in the street in the eye and smile. And you know what? I felt better. My anxiety went down. My insecurities felt a little smaller. It's wonderful what a smile and eye contact can do because eyes and smiles are beautiful things. Did every girl look me in the eye and smile back? No, of course not. But I didn't expect them to. I got a couple of, um, what the fuck are you doing looks, but the good out overweighs the bad even on the worst day. It always does. Shout out to future president Kanye West. That improvement doesn't, doesn't, didn't, insecure my, didn't cure my anxiety and insecurity. It still hasn't. I still have a long way to go. But it's a step in the right direction. So when in doubt, try looking someone in the eye and smile or something of the like. You might be surprised at how much levity you get from that one small corresponding action and thought. My second recommendation to you would be to be honest about your intentions, particularly pertaining to empathic listening. I've talked about my empathic, empathic listening in my post about mental health, or men's mental health, excuse me. So revisit that if you want to, and it's a really good podcast. I think you should. 
But if you don't, I have another example from an earlier source that proves to be just as excellent. Our friend Kevin Hart used this tactic when restoring his daughter's internal security system about her hair. Hart and his children have a thing called, quote, free speaking zones, in which Hart has to detach from being a dad and just listen without judgment. He can't get mad, and he can't punish her in that moment. All he has to do is listen. That was when he discovered his daughter's insecurity about her hair. That was when the breakthrough happened. And that is an excellent example of empathic listening. It's seeking first to understand, then be understood, to use Stephen Covey as a compass. When you seek empathic listening and get, get it from people, it's one of the most liberating feelings in the entire world. I only have empathic listening zones the few people, but I love them and those few people. It allows me to completely strip my armor and be totally vulnerable without outside comparisons and internal insecurities wrecking my shit. I can talk openly about my insecurities, mental health, politics, and women in a way in which I won't be castigated and judged. I use this podcast as a form of public therapy. I'm talking to myself, creating an empathic listening zone to refine and revisit some positions on what I believe are important topics. It's better than any therapist I've ever had. I spend a lot of time coming up with the ideas, editing posts, and writing them. Probably about 12 hours a week at the minimum. But I love it. It soothes me. It gives me a zone where I can unload the massive pile of shit-formed bricks in my head. That's the power of empathic listening. When you seek zones where you can have free expression and speech, you create an avenue in which you can allow yourself to be understood. And remember, we all fear what we don't understand. Give yourself that avenue. Take it. And go figure out your shit. My third recommendation would be to get it in your own head that you can't fix anything unless you fix yourself. Set your own house in order before you criticize the world. And think about that for a second. How could you, even for a minute, think of telling a whole wide-ranging group of folks what, you can do, what to do if you were incapable yourself of doing it? I've made up my mind to never talk about anything that I don't know about unless I'm fully openly admitting that I'm ignorant and trying to get a better understanding of it myself. That's the second of the four don'ts, don't be ignorant. I would be a hypocrite, don't, don't number three, if I were to be, betray that sentiment. So, on that point, one last reference to our guy Jordan Peterson. In his first appearance on Rogan, he indirectly referenced the same thing, even though he hadn't written his book yet. As a Canadian professor in the Humanities Department, Peterson had seen his share of protests across college campuses. But he was confused. Something wasn't adding up. This was where he first uttered, clean your room, and really started building a movement. He saw people protesting the government, the economy, other things that college kids shout and yell about. But Peterson argued a compelling point. What right do these kids have to be screaming about something when some of them don't even have their bloody rooms straightened up, according to him? Quote, Don't be fixing up the economy, 18-year-olds. You don't know anything about the economy. It's a massive complex machine beyond anyone's understanding and you mess with it at your peril. So you can't even clean up your own room? No, well, you think about that. You should, clean the, you should think about that, because if you even can't clean up your own room, who the hell are you to give advice to the world? End quote. This is the same with any other range of advice. Who are you to tell anyone how to successfully network to get a job when you're a bum and don't have one yourself? Who are you to try to say something that is politically incorrect when you swear at and talk shit about people on your burner Instagram account? How are you going to talk and critique your country when you don't investigate or take time to learn about issues or even vote? And let's not forget the most important question to ask yourself pertaining to the topic at hand. Who are you to yell at the world for being so awful when you don't take care of yourself? You can't control the world. It's impossible. It's an incredibly complicated network of people and objects that you couldn't possibly handle. 
Hell, even God just had to say fuck it and flood the damn thing when he saw where shit was going on one occasion. Personal responsibility is the only way to secure yourself internally. Anything else, any blame you cast outwardly, is only going to compound the problem. People can help you, but only you can secure you. You must make yourself okay and be okay with making yourself okay before anyone can even think about stepping in. The war of the comparisons of internal security can only be won if we first win the war within our own minds. It all comes down to you, not anyone else. No one can save you from your own internal chaos, your own internal hell. It's up to you to make a vacation out of it. Make the best of it. Clean your shit up. Secure your internal psyche. If you don't, well, at this point, hopefully you're at least aware of what awaits you. The war inside our own minds can only be won if we tie down our own masts. The comparison of internal security is the root of all comparisons, and is drawn out by fear. If we straighten ourselves out and adopt personal responsibility, there is a way out of the chaos and the ensuing hell that will follow. If not, we will succumb to it. We will not have any control over ourselves, and therefore drudge around in a world of nihilistic otherness, adrift from what truly produces meaning. This is the most important comparison to set straight the one that we must get right if we are to have a shot at all the others. In these dark and twisted times, there are more ways than ever to get distracted by the noise that surrounds us. We have to find a way to shut it out and tune inward in order to reap the benefits of a secure sense of self, which will therefore project goodness out into the world. Our way of looking upon ourselves is challenging, but it's a must if we are to come to terms with who we are, good and bad. Our faults define us, just as much as our strengths, and we must equally learn to project and come to terms with them. Our internal fortitude and mental well-being depends on them. Now, I got to end this podcast before you guys turn me off. I heard it's dark and hell is hot. DMX voice. Woo! All right, everybody. Well, that was fun. I like that one. See, I thought I started out on a good one when I liked that one. I, I, I enjoy that one. I think, I think it's true to a large extent. Obviously, that was written almost 18 months ago and a lot has changed since then. And I think a lot about where, where how I perceive these things has changed since then also. So... Yeah, guys, that is that was uh, that was good. That was good. I like doing that one. We should do more. I'm trying to write more of those more often. I would say I'm trying to write better more often. So that was good. So thanks for listening, guys. Per usual, I can't really believe that we're over. Um, well, actually, next week we'll be at officially a hundred podcasts. A hundred podcasts. I cannot believe that shit. Almost two years into this thing, hundred podcasts, no signs of slowing down anytime soon. It's, it's been really, really awesome. I really, really appreciate you guys just sticking with me being just, you know, overall good people, just kind of, you know, or mostly, I don't know, you might, you might, you know, kill babies in your free time or something, but I, I, I guess I know some of you listen to this shit. So thanks for listening guys. Appreciate you always on the day. Open your mind. Have a great one. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?